0: Welcome to Watchman on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. This week, we'll be taking an inside look at witchcraft with Billy Crone. We'll look at headlines from the end times and learn about how to have real forgiveness with Michael Samuel Smith. Today, we'll learn how to be prepared to disarm deception with David Jamona. We're at war right now. The forces of light and darkness are lined up in battle array as the world moves closer to the end of the age. Today's guest is here to equip us as believers to be battle-ready. Here's our host, Dr. Larry Spargimino, with today's guest to help us be prepared to disarm deception.
1: We are entering an unprecedented time of trial. Time is running out. Are you battle ready? Military strategists throughout history have used deception to win wars. Today we see that Satan is a strategist and seeking to win by using deception. Our guest is Colonel David Jamona. Colonel Jamona has served as a U.S. Army chaplain for some 32 years of military service. He is an End Times expert, a scholar, author, writer, and speaker, and is president of Battle Ready Ministries. Colonel Jimone and Troy Anderson have written a new book. It's titled The Military Guide to Disarming Deception. The subtitle tells us a lot about the book, Battlefield Tactics to Expose the Enemy's Lies and Triumph in Truth. David, thank you so much for being on the show with us.
2: Larry, it's my pleasure. I look forward to a great talk with you today.
1: Well, David, you've had several very instructive firsthand experiences, and I think that's very important. Most of us do remember the attack on Kobar Towers in 1991 in Saudi Arabia. I think 19 airmen died and hundreds were wounded. What lessons did you learn from that tragedy?
2: That tragedy really brought out to me the problem of complacency, which we outlined in our first chapter of our book. I told the commander at that time before this attack that I didn't think that our site was secure enough, and complacency had set in to everybody, and you right. know, they disregarded my information. And then several years later, I'm, I'm in Germany, stationed there, and I read about this horrible blast. Right. At the same building and same site, I was telling this commander some four <laughs> years before that. Right. So complacency is not only in the military in wartime, but it's also in the church right now. Yes. And as you can see, the church is asleep at the wheel.
1: Well, I would agree with you, and you talk about how the military deals with complacency. You talk about, I think it's called forced change, to refocus the troops and to alleviate complacency. Explain that for us, and would that work in a church or maybe even in a ministry?
2: All the things I talk about in our books, in military terms, I explain in civilian language. So Mm. yes, forced change in the military is basically getting the troops out of their complacent attitude. And many people don't realize that war can be a very boring thing. For months at a time, nothing may happen. So everybody lets down their guard. And then all of a sudden, you're in a firefight, and people are getting killed and blown up. So force change, basically, is putting back into the Army, the military, some discipline, get them out of complacency, get them new routines. And it's the same in the church. You know, many pastors before COVID hit, had their programs, had their, all these nice things going on, and they want to go back to that paradigm. But, you know, complacency can kill you. It can kill the military. It can right. kill the church. And so all these things that we're talking about in our book and what we're talking about now can be implemented in the church if pastors so choose to do that.
1: Yeah, I think sometimes in church or in anything, any kind of work, we get into a routine day after day after day. I used to be a state trooper in upstate New York many, many years ago. and. There was a state park that was closed all winter, but we had to patrol it. A lot of snow, no people around, but something could happen. And I think, like you say, sometimes we go on and on and nothing happens, and suddenly something does happen. So we have to be alert all the time, and I think complacency is a killer. I agree with you. So what are some of the major deceptive ideologies that we're facing today? I mean, there are so many, and they're deceptive, but tell us about the big ones.
2: In the United States of America, we have this rise of socialism through Black Lives Matter, Mm. through CRT philosophy and universities, through leftist progressive liberal thinking. And all these folks are thinking communism and socialism is the way to go. And so that's one of the big things that we're facing right now in the United States, in our schools, Mm. in our universities, all of these philosophies have not just happened overnight. They've been here for decades. In fact, John Dewey, who was a socialist, came out of the Frankfurt School of Socialism, was put on the head of our school system in the 20s and implemented many of the things that we're talking about right, today. Right. And then when you talk about defunding the police, for example, why would people want to do that unless <laughs> they wanted to create anarchy? And that's right. their goal. That's their goal, to create division create anarchy so they can take our country over. So those are some of the big things that the church is facing as well as society as a whole, and the church has embraced some of these things.
1: You say that the military uses after-action reviews to highlight what went right and what went wrong. Now, apply that to spiritual warfare, to a church, to a ministry, to an individual
2: ought to sit down with our staff, our people, and every week, you know, after a Sunday service, do an AAR. In the military, after every combat mission, every training event, we sit down, what went right, what went wrong, and what do we need to change, and what do we really need to keep doing? We could do that in our church, in our own lives. People ask me all the time, where do I start about spiritual complacency and spiritual renewal? Do an AAR on your life. Where are you today What things should you drop off? What kind of sins do you need to stop doing? And what kinds of things do you need to start doing, like reading the Word of God, more prayer, more interaction? Church pastors could do the same thing. Are we being effective, or are we just doing the same thing over and over again? I do that on my TV show. I do that in our ministry. I do that in everything that we do. We keep going back over what can we improve. And I think it's a great tool that the military uses that we could use in our own lives as well.
1: We are visiting with Colonel David Jamona. He is one of the authors of The Military Guide to Disarming Deceptions, a great book. David, let's talk about Battle Ready Ministries. You're the president of that organization, and you were sharing with me a little bit. I think it's a great organization, so tell our listeners about it.
2: I think the best thing the listeners can do right now is go to our website. It has all our videos, our newsletter subscription, battle-ready.org. In there, you will find everything that we're doing. We go to churches and conferences. We speak on the TV and radio. We have our own news show called Frontline that we just started producing in the last few weeks. And there's a number of shows on the YouTube channel. So there are many things you can look up on that website that will really get
1: you battle ready. David, the New World Order is staring us in the face. How do globalists and proponents of a one-world government deceive The American public.
2: There's a lot of catchwords and phrases that the American public just doesn't understand. One of them is climate change. When you hear climate change, you think, oh, they want to improve the environment. They want to, you know, get the world reset. But the fact of the matter is, climate change is a nuance for a new world order. Even King George III, who was Prince Charles, is an activist in the new world order. They want a one world government, they want a global order. The WEF, the World Economic Forum, meets in Davos, Switzerland every year, and all the richest people and politicians go there. And they're figuring out ways to control us, control digital currency, which they're doing right now in China, and social credit scores. They want a one-world government because they don't believe that the world is operating as efficient as it can be. So we need to stop all of this and get a great reset, as they call it, and reset the world order, which really is making way for the Antichrist and for the globalization of the world, which inevitably is going to happen, because the Bible says in Romans 13, it will happen.
1: You write about retired U.S. Army Chaplain Colonel Peter Brzezinski, he sees the spirit, Behind the Tower of Babel or Babel in Genesis 11 is one of the greatest deceptions in the world. It is the lie that says, quote, if we can just get together and put out enough effort, humanly speaking, leaving God out of the picture, we can accomplish anything. I think that's a profound insight. Now, I wanna encourage all of our listeners to go to Genesis 11 when they have a chance and read it and just see if that is not descriptive of what is happening today. I think that's profound. Have you found that Christians gloss over Genesis 11? Because I think that account, I think it's so relevant and so powerful. It's way back in Genesis chapter 11.
2: Yeah, the reason God confused our languages and scattered us around the world, because if he had let it continue, it would have been end of the world lot sooner than God planned it to be. Hmm. When man gets together, and he always wants to leave God out of the picture, and that's what their plan was, they are creating a world without God, and they're bringing all kinds of sorts of evil inclinations. Same thing is going on today. The world is becoming smaller through telecommunications technology. Mankind and Satan wants to rule this world without God, and they're going to get their wish and source. They're going to get an Antichrist, they're going to get Satan worship, they're going to have a globalization, they're going to do all these things, and they're going to find out at the end, Christ will come back and destroy that kingdom and set up the everlasting kingdom of Jesus Christ.
1: In your book, we read about dime, D-I-M-E, the use of diplomatic, informational, military, and economic tools as a means of influence. And you point out that national interest can be advanced through non-military means. So Battles and wars are often won that do not take place on the battlefield. So what does that mean for the average Christian today? The
2: fact of the matter is most Christians don't even know we're in a war. <laughs> they look around, they see their surroundings may be peaceful, but there are dark powers that the Apostle Paul talks about. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Right. In the military, we use "dime" all the time to say that war can be in a number of levels. It can be in uh, informational wars, diplomatic wars. There's all kinds of strengths and powers that people can break. That's why, you know, the government, one of the first things they do, they reach for sanctions against mm-hmm. Russia and others yeah. to, you know, slow down their economy and get the people riled. And the same thing happens in the church. The Lord, the Holy Spirit, has given us all these powers that we can bring to the fight. And we don't use them. We don't use the power of prayer as is intended. We don't use the supernatural gift that God has given us for great glory for him. We're not using those kind of gifts, but we can. And if we do, we're going to see some supernatural results that we haven't seen since the first century.
1: You and Troy bring up a lot of issues, strategies, concerns that a lot of us have not even thought of. You point out that there's no such thing as a front line any longer. And you say our battles are multidimensional, body, soul, and spirit. So what do you mean specifically about a multidimensional battle? And I think that's one of the things that we often miss as Christians.
2: I have to go back to World War II, which was probably the last war, maybe Korea, which were battle lines. You know, the Germans were in front of us. We were on you know, the other side, and World War I, the same thing. We knew where the enemy was, we knew how to fight them, we knew what equipment they had, they knew their strategies. But then we get into asymmetrical warfare in Vietnam and terrorism and I've been in Iraq and Afghanistan and saw what it does and there are no battle lines. The battle is all around you. It's called battle space in the military now. And in the Christian world the same thing is going on. There Satan is doing asymmetrical warfare through Many different systems, the government, of the world, educational system. And so we're being attacked without even knowing it. Satan is using psychological operations through many means that he has disposal. And again, the church has not been battle ready and doesn't right. understand the warfare we're in. And that way we're not ready to, to engage the enemy.
1: David, talk about our minds when we are in battle, and specifically, what does 2 Corinthians 10 mean when it talks about taking every thought captive?
2: The Bible says in Romans we need to make a transformation in our mind through the spiritual application of the Word of God, Hmm. and many believers don't know what that means, but the mind is the battlefield. Satan enters through our minds, thoughts. You wonder sometimes, where does that thought come from, this evil thought? this emotion, all these things, well, that's from our, through our senses, and Satan is entering into our lives through these senses, through the mind, and so God has given us gifts and armor, Ephesians 6, all the armor men of God, but how many people are actually armored up? So what I tell everybody is that every morning when you get up, the first thing you think, we're at war. It's not going to end today. It's going to you know, continue through our lifetime Amen. until Jesus comes back. We need to prepare every morning for the warfare of our minds that we're in right now in this day and age.
1: I really think that there's an attack on the minds of men. It's kind of an attack on masculinity. Masculinity is generally being viewed today as toxic and dangerous. You know, if you're a dad, if you love your wife, you love your family, you're ready to protect them, you're ready to protect your country, and you stand for your church, you speak out for righteousness, people view that as toxicity. Do you think that masculinity is really toxic? Masculinity
2: is definitely under attack uh,
1: by the world and the
2: world system. There's no question about it. It's not toxic. It is God's order. God created man, and then he created woman. And he did not create Adam and Steve. He created (laughs) Adam and Eve. Satan, in the tactics he's using right now, is trying to reverse all of God's order. He's been doing that for years. This is nothing new. We think it's new. It's been going on for thousands of years. It's just been at our forefront in our media and in our world system. You go back to Molech, Baal, All the gods that they worship in Israel and the Canaanite culture, they were doing all the same and worse back then. Sodom and Gomorrah, all the things that were happening. It's come back to us now, and it's multiplied because there's more people and more media, but it's still the same fight that's been going on for decades, centuries, and millennia.
1: A few years ago, Christina Hoff Summers wrote a book titled The War Against Boys, and the subtitle How Misguided Feminism is Harming Our Young Men. It's a great book, and she says you should not have to apologize for being male. I agree, and I think what we're seeing today is the feminization of our culture, and this book was written by a very perceptive woman. Talk about UFOs. You know, at one time it was fashionable to explain away the sightings as reflections, flocks of birds, the northern lights, and so on. But more and more people, including the military, testify that UFOs are real. They are real. They seem to be interdimensional. Do you think these are little space brothers who are coming to Earth to help us, or what's going on here?
2: Well, I think the great deception is that aliens are going to come back. They're saying that aliens created this planet, Atheists are saying that now. Steve Dawkins, I heard him say that. Mm -hmm. The whole planet was created by ancient civilizations. They're no longer here. but coming back. And they're going to come back and save us. Well, that's a deception. These beings you're talking about, Larry, interdimensional beings, interesting, you can't really get a hold of them. Most of the people I talk to, I believe this. You probably believe this, too. These are demonic entities and spirits that can come in and out of our atmosphere at will. They can enter dimensions at will because they're interdimensional beings. These are satanic things that are going to continue to increase. And I wouldn't doubt at one point they may actually appear and land and do some things, and people are going to worship these beings. I don't know. know, Dr. Horn says that's the possibility. But we do know one thing. These are not creatures of God. These are satanic beings.
1: Well, David, thank you so much for your work. We've enjoyed the book, tremendous book, Military Guide to Disarming Deception. You and Troy have done a great job. Thank you so much. Thank
2: you, Larry. It's great being with you today.
0: The Military Guide to Disarming Deception is today's featured resource. Using both military tactics, this U.S. Army colonel equips you, as a believer, to be battle-ready. The training manual will teach you to be empowered to counter the darkness of approaching end-times forces. You'll also learn how to resist the propaganda and deceptive ideologies infiltrating the Christian church and society. Order your copy of The Military Guide to Disarming Deception today. Simply call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. What does real forgiveness look like? The type of forgiveness taught in the Bible. Michael Samuel Smith is here to help us see what true forgiveness is and how you and I can practice that true biblical forgiveness.
1: Our dear friend Michael Smith is with us. He is a prophetic researcher and author as well as being a film producer. He has just produced a new film titled Real Forgiveness. Brother Mike, thank you for being our guest.
3: Thank you so much, Dr. Spargimino, for having me back on your show.
1: When I hear the words real forgiveness, I think, boy, that's really something very important. So Brother Mike, what prompted you to create this video about forgiveness? And please tell us a little bit about what the DVD is all about.
3: Well, to start, there are many forgiveness stories in the Bible that have prophecy embedded in them. This is not so much a lesson about just sharing scriptures about forgiveness, but this teaching is very cutting edge, showing major prophecies related to the approximate time of Jesus' return we also show numbers in these stories that project prophetic timelines. We are not date-setters, Pastor Larry, but we do believe the Holy Spirit is showing us prophecy that many people have never heard before. Mm-hmm. And you know, Proverbs 25.2 challenges us to seek out those golden nuggets in God's Word, and I do believe we show that in our DVD.
1: Well, you certainly have a knack in bringing out these golden nuggets. I know that the Lord has gifted you in that wonderful way. So you say the story of Adam and Eve is the first story of forgiveness in the Bible. Please tell us about that.
3: Well, most of us are familiar with the Adam and Eve story found in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, as well as the sin that they committed. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, They covered themselves with aprons made of fig leaves because of their embarrassment. Then later, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, the Lord clothed them with coats of skins. Obviously, the Lord had to shed the innocent blood of animals to make those coats. Later in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, it tells us, It is the blood that maketh an atonement for sin. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. We believe the Lord referred to here is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate. The coats that he made for Adam and Eve only covered their sin, but didn't completely do away with sin. We believe approximately 4,000 years later, when Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected three days later, Adam and Eve went from Abraham's bosom to heaven with Christ, who was also our first fruits of salvation. Praise God.
1: You stated in your DVD, the first prophet in the Bible was Abel, the brother of Cain. Most folks have probably never heard that before. So how did you come to that conclusion? And can we find that in the Bible?
3: Well, over the years, I've heard several people give their opinion who the first prophet In the Bible was. Some say Abraham, and others mention Enoch. The Enoch in Genesis chapter 5, because in the book of Jude, verse 14, it stated, Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. But actually, Pastor Larry, it's someone before Enoch, Hmm. and it was actually Jesus himself who gives us the answer. And it's found in Luke chapter 11, verses 50 through 51. And it says that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, may be required of this generation. And in verse 51, it says, From the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. So this scripture proves that Abel truly was first prophet.
1: Brother Mike, you seem to think that there's a lot more to the story than what meets the eye concerning the subject of forgiveness in Cain's life. Unpack that for us a little bit and take us on a little trip like I know you like to do.
3: Genesis chapter 4 covers most of the Cain and Abel story. Because Cain has a bad attitude in his relationship with God and his brother Abel, he actually commits the first murder by killing his brother. Many people question, why didn't God just take Cain out? There's a lot of lessons to be learned in this chapter 4. Cain had to live with consequences because of his sin. From failed crops, in verse 12, to being a fugitive and a vagabond, he gets to a point he's also in fear for his life and tells God it's more than he can bear, verse 13. We don't know what this mark is, but God put a mark on Cain that others would not want to kill him, which it says in verse 15. You do have to wonder, why would God allow Cain to go forward? Now, in Genesis chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, it appears Cain moved further east to a place called Nod. That's N-O-D. It's important to note the word Nod in Hebrew means the wilderness, as if to say Cain went off into the boonies in our language. So it's a place void of cities and villages. He will meet a woman and have a son. Many people ask the question, where did this woman come from? Genetically, she came from Adam and Eve. We know Adam lived 930 years and had other sons and daughters through Eve. So the woman who marries Cain technically is a distant sister. Yes, God did allow that in that time, since there was only one large family on the earth at that snapshot of time. That was the only way to populate the earth. But years later, under the law, God did not permit people to practice polygamy. So mm-hmm. Cain and his unnamed wife have a child. His name is Enoch. It says that in Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. This is not the same Enoch as in Genesis chapter 5, but I do believe the name Enoch is of major importance. This is a very godly Hebrew name, and Enoch in Hebrew means learning, obedience, or trained. And at this same location, somewhere east of Eden, Cain will build the first city in the Bible, and it's called Enoch after his son, and it says that in Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. Now, I know not everyone will agree with my assessment, but it's important to ask the question, what prompted Cain to name his son this Hebrew name, and how was it Cain's grandson's two of the four, which he had Hebrew names and E-L in it? And that says that in Genesis chapter 4, verse 18. Perhaps there's a good reason why the Holy Spirit wrote Cain's extended family in the Scriptures. Keep in mind, the entire family will all die in Noah's flood two mm-hmm. chapters later in Genesis chapter 6. Perhaps there's a good chance God allowed came to live out his life after murdering his brother to demonstrate the concept of forgiveness, the mm-hmm. same forgiveness that we found from sin after accepting Christ. What a great example.
0: Amen. Michael Samuel Smith's DVD, Real Forgiveness, is available right now. Simply call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Or order online, swrc.com. And don't forget to order your copy of the Military Guide to Disarming Deception. Call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Thank you for supporting Watchmen on the Wall when you purchase a book or DVD. Tomorrow, part two of the Military Guide to Disarming Deception. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station by downloading our SWRC mobile app or by simply subscribing to our daily Watchmen on the Wall podcast. Watchmen on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.